This morning at John, Gospel of John chapter 4, we'll look again at verses 16 to 26. If you're visiting with us today, we're so grateful that you're here. We've been studying a special interaction Jesus has with a woman of Samaria, and we've been teasing out lots of aspects of it. So I'm sort of jumping into the middle of the dialogue, as it were. So it's going to be John 4, beginning at verse 16. After they talked about her need for the water of life that only Jesus could give, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I wouldn't blame you if at this point in our study, several months looking at this text, that you would want to know, Mike, just tell us the main point. We can write that in the margin of our Bibles next to this episode. What's the main point? Cut to the chase. Okay? Jesus Christ rescues sinners to transform them into worshipers. How's that? Jesus has graciously met the Samaritan woman and will meet you to deliver her from the false worship of her ancestors into the glory of worshiping the true God. Nothing could be better for you than that. That's it. That's the point. So, is it fair to assume that sooner or later, this woman wanted to put into practice the things she learned from Jesus about worship? Namely, quick summary, it's not what you do per se, but who you know. It's not where, but how in spirit and in truth. And now all worship on earth is transformed by Jesus' hour. The death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament anticipated and promised is now fulfilled. New Testament worship is a reveling in the fulfillment of the work of Jesus. And because, see, her heart, and like yours also and mine, has been gripped with a new passion to please God, to bring delight to his heart, she begins to wonder this. How would I know if the things I'm doing in worship really please the Lord? 
What should my worship look like? Is what I'm doing week after week in this renewed community in Sychar bringing the kind of honor and glory I want my God to get in my worship? Is, is that a fair question? So she says, where could I get answers to that question? Jerusalem. So she goes to Jerusalem to answer her question. Now let's suppose that after she's converted, the man she's now living with is also converted, and what do they do? They repent of their immoral lifestyle, they get married, they, just, they get Christ-centered marriage counseling. Don't get married without it. <laughs> and he says, honey, I've got a business trip to Jerusalem next week, you want to come along? I'm glad you asked. Let's go. That's not totally within the realm of, outside the realm of possibility. She gets to Jerusalem. What does she observe? Here's what she observes. Acts 2, 42 to 47. The disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now you can be sure she had never seen anything like this. Have you? So what does she do? She grabs an apostle. Says, I got all kinds of questions about this. Do you have time to answer them? Yes, I do. What's your first question? When did all this start? Answer? On the day of Pentecost, when God poured out his spirit on this assembly of discouraged followers of Jesus, who was affected? Devout men and women from every nation in fulfillment of the promise made through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my flesh, my spirit on all flesh. And then she probably asked, where is Jesus, the one I met by the well? Where is he? Answer, about two months ago, he was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead and appeared to hundreds of witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and there he has poured out his spirit to make visible on earth his invisible reign of grace and glory and power in fulfillment of all the promises Jesus has poured out his spirit. He is now king of kings, lord of lords, the victor and conqueror of death, the prince of peace, the lord of life, the savior of the world. And he's making it visible through his spirit. 
And I can tell you, Lainey, this does not look like business as usual, folks merely going through the motions. Well, Mr. Apostle, is there a word that describes this? Actually, there is. What you are seeing, what we are experiencing is called revival. Revival is a vitality in the hearts of human beings that transforms them because of their communion with the risen Christ. And when there's revival, it is quite visible. Did you notice? Hunger for the Word of God. Fervent prayer. Warm fellowship. Radical generosity. Gladness. Praise. And because these things are so visible... Witnesses are deeply moved, and there are lots of conversions. Now, they didn't know that 2,000 years later, British scholar Ian Murray would study revivals in the history of the church, and he wrote this. You can see it in the outline. A revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit brought about by the intercession of Christ, resulting in a new degree of life in the churches and a widespread movement of grace among the unconverted. It is an extraordinary communication of the Holy Spirit of God, a superabundance of the Spirit's operation, and an enlargement of His manifest power. Does anybody want revival in College Park, in your home, in your heart? Who could blame her if she said, I want this in my hometown? But I have some more questions before it's imported to a different locale. Do you have time for a few more questions? By all means, Mrs. Samaritan woman. First set of questions. Can you describe this worship as you have experienced it in these last weeks? Yes, I can. It is a Holy Spirit wrought combination of both and. For example... It is both planned and spontaneous. Verse 46 alludes to planned worship, going up to the temple, as faithful Jews would do at the hour of prayer daily. And in the history of God's people, God's people met weekly for intentional worship, to hear the word of God, to read, to sing. That's why Jews, when they were dispersed around the Mediterranean basin, built synagogues for places to worship. Yet verse 47 describes them as praising God in a spontaneous fashion. A a lame beggar was healed and he got onto his feet and he started jumping and praising God. Could you blame him? Could you blame people for entering in and praising God? God did this in your life? Praise God. You didn't need to tell a Washington Nationals fan the day they won the Holy Spirit to rejoice. They just did it instinctively, right? Little did she or the apostle know, 2,000 years later, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would write this in the outline. When God sends revival, you do not need to exhort people to come together for worship and to praise and to consider the word. They insist upon it. I suspect if we decided to stop meeting here, most of you would insist on us regaining what you'd lost. 
So it's planned and spontaneous. It's public and private. The text informs us that this, they met in the temple and from house to house. This public worship would have been God-centered, governed by the scriptures, not whatever we feel like doing. It would have been culturally relevant. They were Jews in Palestine. They weren't speaking Chinese. And it would have been accessible to the outsider as opposed to secretive and uninviting. And they met house to house, taking their meals. Somewhere in here, they are celebrating the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. What frequency? I'm not sure. And then there's a Holy Spirit-wrought combination of revelation and responding. That's the essence of worship. Seeing who God is and assuming an appropriate posture. So God discloses himself, his character, his person, his acts in verbal form, and we acknowledge him with what he deserves. So in Hebrew, some of the words for worship, and in Greek, uh, the word often means to bow down. That is the appropriate stance stance of someone in the presence of a majestic glory. If you were slouching at home on the sofa and a dignitary walked in, you would probably stand up. And worship is also seeing the value, seeing the worth, the preciousness of something. We would call that adoration. You notice that in the ambulatory, there's numbers of uh, parents with newborns gazing with unforced affection on this precious gift of priceless value, right? You know what I'm talking about? What is the priceless value? It's the object of the worship of the New Testament. It is the glory of the Redeemer. In Jesus Christ, God's appointed Messiah has put away the sins of his people. God has raised him from the dead, guaranteeing you will live forever. He is your life, your hope, your God, your friend. And he sits at the Father's right hand governing the universe for your good and his glory. If there's any doubt, this is the theme in the book of Acts I've put at the end of the outline. Just a sampling of the preaching, the first half of Acts. Take a look at it on your own. The apostles are constantly preaching the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is boom, just read the book of Acts. It's there over and over and over again. He is the object, the glory of the Redeemer is the object of their worship. Another Holy Spirit wrought uh, thing that characterizes worship is awe and intimacy. So verse 43 and 46 describe this balance. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Yet there was warmth and gladness of heart. And this tension, beloved, captures a Holy Spirit-gifted response to God who is one and at the same time infinite, holy, incomprehensible, utterly different, and yet he is near, knowable, and like us in our humanity in Jesus. What ought our our response be to that? Well, when you see the holiness of God and the demands of the law of God, you must repent. You must acknowledge, I'm not that. You are what I should be. So you repent and you grieve, and yet you see his love for you at the cross, and you believe and rejoice. It's both repenting, rejoicing, Grieving, delighting, 
You can't have one without the other and have a revival that isn't a counterfeit. So Holy Spirit wrought worship then is both reverent, quiet, stunned, gripping, humbling, and yet joyful, exuberant, comforting, and bold. And this worship service, week in and week out, captures that balance. God is unspeakably radiant, yet I'm accepted. You actually see this paradox mirrored in the worship in the, in the book of Revelation. The saints who've gone before us are beholding in love the face of Jesus, not as judge, but as lover, and they're still falling down at the throne in awe. So can you see how incongruous it would be that a God who is holy and merciful would be worshipped with, with worship that is sleepy, thoughtless, flippant, stifling of expression. That's why Jamie began the service this morning, as we do every week, by saying, quiet your heart. Free yourself from distraction. You have come to meet with the most important person in the universe. That's why it's important that you are here on time. We start at 10.30. The worship has an integrity, a wholeness to it. It's planned thoughtfully from, begin, from soup to nuts. <laughs> when, when Janice and I were in seminary, we worshiped a wonderful church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. And uh, of course, like you, we always sat in the same place, like a little to the left, five rows back from the middle. And another family always sat in front of us. And they always came in five minutes late. Without fail, they were five minutes late. Same family, five minutes late. And you kind of wanted to tap them on the shoulder and go, just start the whole process five minutes earlier <laughs> so you can get here on time. Beloved, you need to be in your seat, ready to worship at 1030. We'll see you next week if that makes any difference. <laughs> the last... Uh, Beautiful, Holy Spirit-wrought tension is outward form and inward reality. Contemporary Bible scholar John Piper has observed this. What we find in the New Testament, perhaps to our amazement, is an utterly stunning degree of indifference to worship as an outward ritual and an utterly radical intensification of worship as an inward expression of the heart. So without a doubt, in the Old Testament, there was a focus on ritual. Priests, sprinkling of blood, sprinkling of water. True worship was only where God stipulated, the temple. His presence was there, and as we read from Second Chronicles, the place where God chose to dwell was off limits to everybody but the priests once a year. A thick curtain separated this space from the people of God, showing that God was holy. He's not, you can't approach him being a sinner. But in the New Testament, the temple's Jesus. <laughs> The temple's here, and he's poured out our spirit so that where there is an assembly of God's people and the spirit is presence, there's the temple of God. That temple, that, that veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Only something God could do with his hands, as it were. So our worship depends on the presence of the Holy Spirit, as Jamie prayed as we started. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest intellects in the history of America, was a part of God uh, bringing revivals to New England. 
and he reflected on those. He wrote copiously about true and counterfeit revivals. But here's what he observed in his time. He looked around at the lethargy in churches and he said, they had a form of godliness, but they denied its power. The people could shuffle doctrines like playing cards, but their ultimate concerns were not God and his kingdom, but their land and his influence, and their influence. Lord, could that be me? What's my ultimate concern? It sounds like a repeat in Jesus' day. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So, beloved, what compromises vital revival-like worship must be self-centeredness and cloudy thinking about God. So I can tell you personally, personally, I have to ask myself, is my worship principally for me or for God's glory? Am I here to get or to give God glory? Do I seek him because nothing else is so desirous or glorious? When noon comes, what's the fundamental question I should ask myself? Not what did I get out of this, how did I do? How did I do? Lord, did I honor you? Did I offer you the worship that you are worthy of? And if my worship is pale or anemic, it could be because I'm satisfied with so little of God and so much of myself. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said about worship. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Good thing to think about. Should we put that in the foyer as you come into worship? Our God is a consuming fire. So, Mr. Apostle, thank you for answering those questions about what worship looks like. I want to import this to my hometown. Do you have time for another question? Yes. What why should we be so concerned about worship? Let me give you some quick answers. Number one, he deserves it. What's the refrain over and over again in Revelation in the worship? He is worthy. Number two, it's fitting and a logical response to his grace and glory. How do we not adore the source of all goodness and blessing? Number three, he tells us to. I transpose those in the outline. Number four, we desire to worship. He sought me. He revealed himself to me. He lavished upon me more than I could ever hope for every good and perfect gift through the gospel of grace and mercy. And so I want to proclaim the excellencies of the eternal lover of my soul. Look at the outline with me under B4. I want us to read together these words from a hymn writer, Samuel Stennett. The hymn is To Christ the Lord. Let's read this together as a sampling of what I'm saying here. Together. To him I owe my life and breath and all the joys I have. He makes me triumph over death and saves me from the grave. To heaven the place of his abode he brings my weary feet, shows me the glories of my God, and makes my joy complete. In the peerless, in the peerless, yeah, I'll get to the next one in just a second. 
Very engaging class here. Very good. In the peerless Jesus, we see God. And we receive the priceless salvation accomplished through his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Can we put it this way? His gifts are so abundant and his character so compelling, we can't not adore him. So maybe if you don't sense that adoration in your soul, you have not grasped his compelling character or the abundance of his gifts. Can I put it this way? The intensity of our delight in the Lord in worship should match the magnitude of the messenger and the message. (laughs) It's both the person of Jesus and what he has done for us. He loves you. Sin and death are conquered. Now let's read the next verse from Samuel Stennett's hymn. Since from his bounty I receive such proofs of love divine, had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be thine. A thousand men could not compose a worthy song to bring. Yet your love is a melody our hearts can't help but sing. That's why, beloved, our worship is God-centered. He is the worthy object and the primary audience of our worship. When we have the musicians here or Karen is playing or someone is leading... You're the worshipers. God's the audience. What is he hearing? What is he receiving? And another question, if you have time, Mr. Apostle, or Mr. Apostle's answering the question, why is this important? We relish the many practical benefits of worship. Worship's good for you because you are never more what God created you to be than when you are delighting in God. You need worship to save you from your inferior glories. The more savory to your soul God is, the less attractive sin will be. You realize that the ultimate determiner of the glory of your life is what you worship. That's why the hymn writer Ora Rowan wrote this. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him, now unrivaled king. Beloved, when you are worshiping, you are performing the ultimate act of justice in this world. You are setting right what is wrong with this world, and that is principally God is not getting the worship he deserves from his creatures. Did you realize that when you come in here and worship and leave, you have, you have committed justice. You're doing what's right. God getting the praise due his beautiful name. For me personally, one hour a week isn't enough. Singing, rejoicing, shouting, giving thanks. I need it all week long. That's why I probably told you before, in my devotions, I sing, rarely out loud, but I sing to the Lord. I've been a Christian 40 years. I've got a whole lot of little Christian songs and hymns memorized. I don't think I can fulfill all the commands in Scripture to sing to him, rejoice, give thanks, shout in this one hour. So I would encourage you to think about importing out of here the pleasure you take here into your private worship. It was mentioned in the confession, private worship, 
family worship. How many of you parents sing together with the kids in family worship? Just out of curiosity, are there some that have singing in their homes? Wonderful. Do you have time, Mr. Apostle, for one last question? Do you have time? One last question, Mr. Apostle. Would you summarize the mood and distinctives of this worship that we are experiencing in Jerusalem? Yes. Number one, our, our worship reflects reality. We live in a fallen world. We don't come here in, in here and forget that people, that's why when Jamie prayed, he prayed for people who are lonely, who are sick, people who've died. We're acknowledging the brokenness of this world. Secondly, our worship cherishes the hope of grace and glory. We expect, a, we expect with confidence a great future. That should be part of our worship. Our worship, thirdly, is gospel-driven. It is always week in and week out celebrating. In fact, the disciples thought so highly of this, they changed the day to the first day of the week, Sunday, to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every worship service, as it were, is a mini-celebration that Jesus has risen from the dead and conquered our sins on the cross. Fourth, our worship is rooted in biblical revelation. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, which we did. We preach the Scriptures. Everything we do, we want to be Scripture. And we actually have a time in our service called Confessing Our Faith, which is a time to summarize in a pithy form an aspect of biblical revelation to remind ourselves what is true about our faith. We confess it. We agree with what God has revealed. Fifth, our worship is culturally relevant because it's happening within a culture. We shouldn't expect someone from Japan to come in here and find a Japanese-style worship any more than we should go to Japan and find an American-style worship. It's culturally It happens within a cultural milieu. Our worship is principally designed to edify the saints. This is God's time with you, his people, to seek him, to delight in him, to hear from him, to cherish him. It's principally for believers. And having said that, we want our worship to be accessible to seekers. Will people who have been on church their whole lives come in and make heads or tails out of what we're doing? Not immediately. That's why you invite them, you take them out to coffee afterwards and say, let me explain to you what that meant. Here's why we did this. In fact, our bulletin has wonderful little explanations for every element of our worship. There's an explanation for why we do that. That is to help those who we pray are in our midst, who are seeking, who don't yet know the Lord, don't consider themselves church, to begin to make sense out of what we're doing. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, he, in, he anticipates unbelievers being in their midst. That's why it can't sound stupid. That's why it can't everybody speaking in tongues at the same time. It, would, it just wouldn't make any sense. So it needs to be intelligible, sensible, and accessible, and let the world come in and see us delight in God and be provoked to a jealousy, I want that too. So, is our gathering to worship producing a gathering of worshipers? Let's pray. Thank you for what your word tells us about the most important thing in heaven and earth worship of the living God. 
we have 10,000 reasons to worship you. Forgive us for sleepy, half-hearted, distracted worship. Thank you that Christ cleanses that through his blood. And bring revival to us. Start with our own hearts, our homes, friends, small groups, home groups. And we long to see this here in this, this Acts passage in our own town here. Holy Spirit, come, make Christ known. For his glory's sake, amen.